Good morning, everybody. This is uh, David Moreno, joined by my buddy Michael Mola, who is like Waldo in Carmen San Diego in human form. We have no idea in the world where he is. So before I get to Michael Lennox, Mike, where are you? I am in Charlottesville. That's a great city. Um, Mr. Moreno, I am in your favorite city in the world. Where am I? Miami. Yes, sir. Good morning, everyone. Go. Yeah. Hi, Michael. Good morning. And then we're joined by Michael Lennox, uh, uh, professor of business at the University of Virginia, uh, very distinguished professor, author, speaker, and he's got a new book called Strategy in the Digital Age, Mastering the Digital Transformation. Michael, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's listen, uh, obviously the timing of your book, I think, is, is tremendous. Um, I would love to hear some of the lessons in the book, but one of the questions I have is, you know, with the change in AI, I'm an attorney and I can't tell you how many times I have clients now, particularly in big litigations, that say, oh, did you pull these four cases? And I'm looking at these cases, I'm like, where, where did you get these cases from? Oh, chat GPT. I'm like, that does not work as efficiently as folks think um, for, for that purpose. But obviously the change of technology, it's massive in legal application, but it has so much big impact across a number of areas. I would love if you could share some of the, the greatest use cases and the places where people should position themselves business-wise to really take advantage of it. Yeah, Daniel Lawyer just recently got in trouble for using ChatGPT and was yeah. having fake, uh, uh, fake references in the, yeah. uh, in the summary. Yeah, cases. Why don't you do it, Mike? <laughs> yeah, not me. <laughs> I think, you know, that's actually an important thing to recognize about what these large language models are doing. You know, ultimately, they're just predicting the next word and so when it comes to things like citations, it just makes them up because it looks across those people who have cited either different cases or different articles uh, and will like combine names together in ways that aren't necessarily real. So it's one of those particular cases where generative AI isn't quite doing what people think it might do there uh, in, in the generation. But David, to, to your bigger question here, um, it's interesting. I think obviously over the last eight months or so, generative AI with the release of ChatGPT is, is dominating everyone's mind here and, and dominating everyone's uh, discussions. But AI is much broader than that. Uh, and AI has been around for quite a while. Uh, it continues to evolve. Uh, it includes uh, things like autonomy. It includes what's happening in other domains like uh, Dolly 2, if you have played around with the uh, artistic AI, uh, generative AI. So. Um, well, I think it's right to be focusing right now on these long, uh, large language models. Um, it, it gets even far more comprehensive and, and widespread than that. And, and again, pervasive in a lot of different domains that maybe people don't, don't recognize. So Michael, what are, what are those domains that, that we're looking now that we've seen the side of what, you know, how digital technology may not be great if you're not using it, um, optimally. Yeah. What are those industries where, where if you are using it optimally, it will, will be um, something that helps move, I think, so many industries, if not all industries forward. I'll give you an example. We're working, I'm working with one of the leading um, Web3 metaverse companies in the world right now. We're doing some really exciting things. I was on the phone yesterday, I was on a Zoom yesterday uh, with a group that I'm sure Mr. Moreno is very familiar with called the Sugar Hill Gang. And uh, we're doing some things. They have something coming up called the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And there's amazing things that are going on in the world right now. And in the music industry specifically, when I went to law school, I went 
with this grand idea of I wanted to go to law school, I wanted to become an attorney, I wanted to represent artists and what I perceived to be injustices occurring against them, musicians, by the record labels. And we see that with artists and galleries and different things. There's always been this middleman, there's always been this person that takes and when you come back to get your, you know, hey, your royalties and everything, it's like, well, we had to do this and double counting and put back down and all of a sudden you don't get that much. Now through blockchain technology, now through the immutability of technology that's you know that that exists we can for the first time ever have direct interaction between you know content creators between people and their audience how is that going to benefit all of us you know in in with regard to that specifically or whether it's with um whatever it might be how is that going to help all of us is that what we're talking about here is that what this technology is providing for people well, well, clearly in the music industry, we've seen some really interesting cases uh, recently of uh, you know deep fakes for artists and the like. Um, I think one of the interesting questions, and it isn't resolved by any means, is if you're building the AI off of you know a, a portfolio of music that's out there, uh, and it's sampling off of individual artists who have copyright. How do we think about? Uh, the marginal contribution of that one song uh, to that overall creation that you have. Uh, and I think you're right. There are th thinking around blockchain that might allow for some attribution. Um, but I think it's a broader question of, of what does a creative process owe to those who came bef before them? Uh, the, right, the recent Ed Sheeran uh, lawsuit uh, um, where, you know, sampling just you know, certain chord patterns and the like, is that is that a copyright infringement or like? And now we're talking about building songs off of literally, you know, thousands and thousands of, of pieces of music to create uh, what the generative AI is. I, I think this is a, 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 one of those areas that still needs to be resolved for sure. Yeah. I think we got the mighty, mighty Meltzer uh, in the mix. Uh, Dave, I don't know if you want me to turn it over to you quickly for a question or you want me to, to, to ask another one? Yeah, you lost muted. Yeah. Yeah, Davi's still getting set up. In, there in, you go. Can you hear me? Can, yes. Can you hear there me? you go. All right. Sorry about that. I'm seeing Andrews here uh, getting in before our tee off time. So, not too bad. <laughs> Anyways, um, you know, we're talking about artificial intelligence. And one of the things that I've noticed, Michael, is that so many people want to make it their, their master and they're so afraid of it. Uh, um, and interesting because I will go back to analogously look at artificial intelligence the same as a hammer. You know, a, a hammer can build a house, but it can also tear it down. Yeah. Uh, the only difference is AI has a lot more power uh, th than a hammer. And those who don't embrace it as their servant are going to create a gap of capability that they may never catch up. There's already a technology gap that exists but this may be the last frontier when it comes to a gap that you can't recover from if you don't embrace this technology. Uh, the speed that you can have either the first month or the last mile because of AI creates a quantitative capability that creates this unbelievable gap. Uh, what are people going to do that don't embrace the technology that can't uh, compete with productivity? Um, you know, where, where do you see this huge gap really impacting our society? 
Well, you know, first broad observation, um, you know, at the heart of all this is data, right? The data we use to train these, these algorithms. And I, I use the analogy, it's like building an on-ramp to the highway. And once you've built that on-ramp and you're on the highway, you're often running down that highway. So if you're slow to get on that highway, you might never catch up. Uh, it's just, it's gonna be that difficult because again, more data improves the algorithms, generating more transactions, more data. And again, it's just this virtuous cycle um, that improves over time. Um, and that, that's more for those who are kind of controlling the AI or using the AI. For individuals, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, there's been this, this fear for 150 years, even longer, uh, about machines replacing you know, jobs. Um, this goes back to the original Luddites where uh, UK uh, uh, industrial revolution, you know, destroying the looms that were replacing their jobs. And the good news is what we've seen repeatedly out throughout history is that technology ends up creating new jobs and new opportunities. I think one of the fears that people have right now is not that I think AI is gonna replace everybody's job, but it's going to allow those who kind of sit at the top of the pyramid to be even that much more productive, right? We began talking about lawyers, right? That same lawyer now who maybe had to have a staff of junior associates who are doing a lot of the case review and the work for them might now be able to use generative AI and allow themselves to have 10x the, you know, the caseload or workload that they have. Um, doctors, I like to use the example that in dermatology, a lot of evidence now that AI might be more effective than the doctors themselves in identifying skin cancers. Now, again, that doesn't eliminate the dermatologist. You still need that person. But again, that single dermatologist can now do you know, 10x or more uh, treatment of patients than they could in the, in the old model. And I just think we're going to see that over and over in different industries where those who are the most successful kind of sitting at the top are going to be able to be that much more productive. And it begs the question kind of what happens to those who aren't you know, sitting, sitting in those privileged positions. Well, it's interesting, Dave, sorry for interrupting, but it's, it's interesting because I just utilized an example. I've been uh, teaching perpetual content about capturing your essence, regardless of whether you post it or not. Um, and, you know, now, because I have so much content out there, I can take anything and say, you know, write a 10 chapter book on don't do business with dicks. Chapter number one should be about this, using stories like this, chapter two like this. Create a table of contents, an intro in it, and a conclusion as if you were David Meltzer, speaker, author, entrepreneur. And about six months of my work, I'm that far ahead. I still have to make it mine from there, but it's amazing. And that's a great example of you know how far ahead, where if nobody has any content out there, you can't say, well, write this as if I'm you know, Joe Schmo toll booth operator in you know, Newark, New Jersey. So, you know, there's huge opportunities to create uh, a new start for you because zero to one is so much faster in the last mile, so much faster utilizing artificial intelligence. Uh, go ahead, guys. Sorry for interrupting. Hey, can I throw something out there, Dave, unless you have a, a question that you want to ask? Michael, oh. one of the things I'd like to give a, a nod to my, my former law school professor. His name was Joseph Beard, and he was just this visionary. He was uh, my professor of entertainment law, just this imag amaz amazing, imaginary guy. And back in 2001, I had the privilege of doing the research for a book that he wrote. This is 2001, and it was called Clones, Bones, and Twilight Zones. It was protecting the digital persona of the quick, the dead, and the imaginary. And he was talking about back then all of the things that were coming now and that we're seeing now. That was 20 years ago. 
where are we going to be 20 years from now? First of all, I, I got to get more creative with my uh, book titles. There. That's, that's a great, <laughs> great title there. Well, I talk about, so I did engineering as an undergrad back in, you know, really to date myself, early 80s, late 80s, early 90s. We were learning AI back then. We were learning neural networks. We were learning machine learning. But what I like to say is we're missing two things. One, we didn't have the processing power. And two, we didn't have the data to train our data sets like we have today. And so I often talk about this exponential growth in technology. We see it in terms of processing power, the old Moore's law uh, that's played out now for almost 50 years. We see it in terms of bandwidth and storage. And what's hard for people to grasp that if those trends continue for another five, 10 years of exponential improvement in those core underlying digital technologies, the world will be radically different in ways that are actually very hard for us to articulate and even envision here. And I think that's the level of the disruption that I think is very hard for people to understand. That this is moving incredibly quickly and will likely continue to accelerate. And, and again, in ways that are really hard for us to even predict what that world might look like in five or 10 years. Michael, do you see a specific industry uh, where there are more growth opportunities than others? Actually, my, my common refrain is I have yet to find an industry that is not being impacted by, by digital technology and AI and the like. Uh, I, I think this is, is very widespread. And one of my main messages in the book is this idea that I think when it becomes like digital transformation popular in the business world now, um, they, they think about their IT organization and how they get their data you know, organized and like and maybe apply these tools. My main point is this is fundamentally restructuring industries. Uh, it is changing the nature of competition. It's opening opportunities for what we call winner take all markets where you can scale very quickly and dominate the industry. Um, we've seen this in tech for a while now, you know, Google with massive market share in search, uh, social media companies uh, like Facebook and Meta with massive market share in terms of social media. Um, that might be accelerating in a wide variety of industries now as they start to leverage uh, this technology. And again, uh, what we often see when we have these disruptive moments uh, is a changing the competitive ordering. Those incumbent firms who have maybe had success for years might find themselves threatened and, and out of business uh, as this technology more infuses itself uh, in different industries. Michael, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the philosophical application of all of this. And I'll tell you what I mean. One of the things that we're doing, one of the, the big, big artists in the music industry are talking to them. And the person that I'm working with who's behind the scenes who created a lot of this technology had actually gone to, to one of the, the major record labels and said, this is what we're doing with this thing. This is a couple of years ago with this thing called blockchain technology. And through this authentic and mutable fashion, we'll be able to show exactly what people are doing, you know, rights. This is how many songs if a if a child in Israel listens to Tupac's changes at 3 a.m., we'll be able to know that. And this artist will be able to get their rights because that song was played at that time. And the label was like, wait, you mean they'll be able to see exactly what's going on? And he's like, yeah. And they're like, we don't want it. Right. So how much of this has been going on where people, industries, people that are at, at, their, at the top have been doing things that might not necessarily be great for the rest of the people that now this industry, this technology is going to change because everything's transparent. Everything now, we can finally see the veil has been lifted. How does that change things for everyone? Yeah, we talk about the, the deconstruction of the value chain, that in many different industries, what we're seeing is those old, specifically like vertically integrated models are getting picked off by small players that come in and take just some very specific part 
of that value proposition or value chain. This is kind of what's happening in the financial services industry with the fintech uh, sector. It's not that somebody's going after um, uh, Chase Bank or Citibank uh, directly. It's you know Square taking a little bit of your business here and Chime taking a little bit of your business there. Um, I think we see the same thing in telecommunications. We see the same thing in energy. We see the same thing in entertainment. Um, yeah. And so I think those those efforts by incumbents to keep the status quo are going to get undermined as these technologies evolve and, and again, just radically different ways of, uh, of moving forward. Do we have music labels, record labels moving forward if you're able to really pull off a decentralized blockchain oriented um, uh, model here? Right. Dave? Yeah, no, I... One second. So, but as a construct, I think it's really important to know our own skills, our own knowledge, and what our desire and usage should be. Uh, people try uh, to make a technology everything, and that's the differentiator between a master and a servant. Where do you see people can get into trouble in this master-servant relationship? Because obviously, this is the least expensive servant we've ever been given, uh, but so many people you know, like in colleges, for example, are using it as their master, right? And they're writing their papers and doing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm stealing from some colleges and universities. Things with it. What do you see is the, the biggest uh, mistake that people would do when they utilize artificial intelligence? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to steal from some colleagues at my University of Toronto who made this, I think, really important observation is that what AI does at the end of the day is it is very good about making predictions. But more often than not, you still need to layer judgment on top of those predictions, whether you utilize those predictions, whether you even give like autonomy to a vehicle or to some process and the like. And so this is why, again, I think we're gonna have this kind of superstar economy where the those people who are able to effectively understand and leverage AI, who can leverage judgment on top of the predictions are gonna be the big winners. So I think where there's a mistake is assuming the AI can can do the judgment piece of this, that, that you just kind of let it go and it's gonna do everything for you. It still requires quite a bit of those human attributes on top of that. Um, borrowing from another colleague of mine, Ed Hess has written very eloquently about the types of management capabilities that you need in this brave new world are gonna be things like humility, uh, empathy, the kind of simply human things that we can do that, that no AI can do, no, uh, predictive algorithm can do at the end of the day. Um, so it is a tool, and then you need to complement the use of that tool. Um, look, when I'm in higher ed, right, we're all freaking out about what's this going to do to like exams and how students approach their work and the like. I, I don't think we can, you know, put our head in the sand, right? The students are already using it. The question is, how do we empower students to use the technology to advance what they do? And um, that might mean we have to rethink how we do assessments, right? I might not be able to do the same quiz that I used to do in the past. Um, that's okay, because again, this is just yet another technology that kind of enhances that distinctly set of human characteristics that we can bring to what we do. Uh, and, and it's gonna be on us as educators, for example, of helping our students understand that and, and, and leverage the technology, not substitute the technology. Michael, thank you so much. Um, we really enjoyed the conversation. Can you briefly tell everybody where they can find you and where they can find the book? 
Yeah, absolutely. You can go to uh, michael-lennox.com. That's Lennox, L-E-N-O-X. Uh, you can also find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and, and any of your favorite online uh, bookstores there. Uh, and it comes out in a couple of weeks. So I'm very thankful for you to have the, the opportunity to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, look, we're looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us. We'll definitely have to have you back on after the book's out. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Happy Friday. Awesome. I mean, technology is changing the world. Uh, next up, uh, we have Eugenia Jordan, who's the CMO at Telecom at the Telecom Info Project. Eugenia, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, so Eugenia, much like Michael, is also an author. Her, her book is the number one uh, in women in business on Amazon, which is also like, let's, where's my rose? I've got this rose to give people when they deserve roses. Uh, <laughs> uh, the book is called Unlimited, The 17 Proven Laws to Success in a Workplace Not Designed for You. I mean, that is a mouthful of a title and my mind is like churning on, on what the book's about. So I, rather than me guess what it's about, Eugenia, love to hear uh, what the book is about and, and what drove you to write it. Such a great question. And thank you again for having me here. So I'm a Russian immigrant. My story started at Communist Russia in 1970. And when I moved to the U.S. 27 years to the North America, I moved to Canada, then to the U.S., I didn't realize that there was a system. That system was corporate America, and you can call it ignorance is a bliss. I believed, and my mama, God bless her, she taught me that I can do anything and I deserve it. So I started in my industry as a receptionist. And 23 years later, I became an overnight success as the CMO. <laughs> so ignorance is a bliss because I always asked when people told me, oh, no, you cannot do that. You cannot speak in a meeting. I asked, why not me? Why not me? I see you're climbing the ladder. You um, getting promotions. By why not me? How am I different? During COVID, when we were, yes, Mike. No, no, continue. I'm just listening. I'm agreeing with you. And I'm glad because as women in tech, as an immigrant, as an underrepresented group, we need people to hear our stories. We need to people to support us because when we in this together, we can change the face of leadership and we can build a more equitable world for all of us. So the story of this book started during COVID. I read maybe 50 books during that time um, because, again, I wasn't traveling. I was stuck at home and I wanted to learn. There was a lot of anxiety going on and reading was my safe heaven. And on my 20th book, I realized that majority of leadership books were written by men. In 2020, which is just three years ago, there were more leadership books, business books written by the person named John than by women or immigrants or people of color. Six months later, after that realization, I was in L.A., 
and I was doing a presentation for students from underserved schools. And once I shared my story about growing in my industry from a receptionist to the CMO, the young African-American lady came to me, she held my hands and she said, you need to write a book because you gave me inspiration and hope that a, a woman like you can become the CMO. I can be anything. Wow. Eugenia, and I'm sure Mike has like some sort of amazing question with the elected because <laughs> he's like the smartest guy I know. But uh, what an inspiration. Uh, I, I want to read the book, but to go from secretary to CMO in telecom is is an amazing journey. And we can't wait to hear more about your journey. But Mike, I don't want to take away time from you. I just wanted to, again, give Eugenia her flowers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Eugenia, thank you for that. Really powerful. And uh, Moreno, if she read 50 books uh, during COVID, I think she read 49 more than me. I'm not sure how many more than you, but good, good on you for doing that, Eugenia. Uh, you know, as the old saying goes, whether, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're usually right. And so it all starts with a belief, right? And I think so much of that is instilled in us from our society, from our culture and from other things. And so Thank you to people like you for helping to change so much of that. We have with one of the companies I'm working with, uh, our chief inspiration officer is the first female African-American pilot and astronaut of a uh, space shuttle. It's amazing. Yeah, and when I watch her get on stage and talk to the crowd, it's just astounding to see because I think you know, people recognize we all have like Dave talks about it. Everybody loves Rocky, right? We all have this thing in us where we want to believe we can. But because of who we are or because of where we come from, I'm, you know, I'm a guy that had a, a single mother who, who worked for, to raise my sister and I. And I'll never become a lawyer. I'll never become successful. I just didn't believe that. Um, and so we see this with women. We see this with people of color where they have these in, these um, illusionary barriers, but maybe not so illusionary, maybe maybe real in so many ways that are put in front of them that we need that require people like you to help break down. So you've given us these 17 laws of success for, for women and for others to be able to apply so that they can win without giving us the whole book. We, want, we don't want to know the secret sauce because we want to read it. What are one or two of those top laws that can help people understand how they can go from believing they can rather than they can't? So Mike, you bring up a really, really good point about us sometimes not believing in ourselves. And the first part of my book talks about taking control of your destiny, accepting our stories. I am like you. I grew up in communist Russia in single with single mom. And what it meant sometimes that I couldn't afford lunches. My grandfather was packing me lunches and I was so ashamed to eat my, you know, sandwich. I, I was going hungry all day and then I was eating it on a bus. But can I allow that limit me? I can't. And look at you now too. You didn't allow those, your upbringings limit you. So it's, a, it's one of the laws talks about realizing what those triggers are. What's stopping us from becoming successful and being able to talk about it freely? Because when you accept every single part of your story, 
you become unlimited. And I share my stories in my book because I was, my first marriage was abusive. And for the longest time, I wouldn't talk about it because in my mind, like Mikey was saying, I believe that executive women, we don't get abused. Everyone can be in that situation. So being able to talk about every single part of your story is freeing. You become unlimited and you can control your own destiny. But the other great point you brought up, and that's the second part of my book, is it takes a village. You cannot do it alone. So we need allies like you on the screen. We need allies to mentor and sponsor. Mention that person's name in the room. You did it fabulously. You mentioned your inspirations officer name on this webcast. Amazing. And we need more people to do it. So that's the second part of the book. And the last one is we're all here. We've achieved something amazing. So now it's our opportunity to live in our purpose and give back to people like us. And Dave and Mike, I bet you mentor and you sponsor people that look like you and grew up like you because you want them to become as successful as you are today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, Mike and I have a lot in common and Eugenia, we also have that in common. I also grew up with a single mom who had me at 16 years old, right? And, and everything, she, she's, she's now a lawyer, a very successful lawyer and um, everything she's done has been an inspiration to me and so many. And one of the things that she taught me was, you know, you have to lift while you climb. Like your situation may be awful, um, but there are a lot of people's situation out there that are even worse than yours. And what you have to realize is that you being you and being successful may motivate someone to want to strive for more. Um, and it's it's something that I wear as a badge of honor. You know, it really it, it bothers me when when people of color or women are um, less inclined to give back, right? Because for all of us to be where we are, it's because somebody you know took the time to mentor or invest in us. Uh, or, you know, even when we went around, you know, we're our sponsor, which is really, really great. So I, I try to encourage folks, you know, as much as possible to do that. And, it, you know, sometimes there's a, this, this battle, battle in the head of some people that I've already got to work, you know, twice as hard to, to, to achieve what other people are achieving work-wise. And then that's to spend time and invest outside of other people is not fair. And I've been talking to young people about that a lot lately. Look, it, it's not fair, but it is what it is, right? And you wouldn't be there had, had someone not done that for you. Uh, so one thing I want to ask you, because I don't know if, if that woman that came here 23 years ago that started as a secretary knew that you'd be a CMO in telecom, you know, right now uh, and out of the abusive marriage and all of those things. Uh, maybe maybe you knew that would happen. That's amazing. Um, but what would you what would you tell that, that girl that just got here to, to, to America after now that you've lived? What advice do you have for your younger self? Wow. So um, I would tell that young Eugenia that she's amazing and 
don't let anyone to tell you otherwise. Everything, you have everything to succeed right inside of you. Don't allow anyone to limit you. So that's the only advice. And go find, David, you were saying, go find those sponsors. And as you were talking, I remember the quote from Madeline Albright, um, who is an immigrant, who was an immigrant as well. There's a special place in hell for women that don't help other women. And in my book, I um, rephrase it and I said there is a special place in hell for underrepresented that don't help other underrepresented. So to that young girl, believe in yourself and find people that will see how amazing you are and help you climb and achieve your dreams. Absolutely poetic. And Eugenia, thank you so much. Um, we're going to suggest everyone go out and, and take a look at um, what Eugenia is up to. Read Unlimited. Thank you for joining us, Eugenia. Look forward to speaking to you again and have a fantastic Friday. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. All right. And that was powerful. I need to read that book. Yeah, what um, an inspiration. Yeah, you know, it's, and we're coming on now. I, I think he's in the waiting room. Phil Simon, if he's there, let's bring him on, author of uh, The Nine. Uh, hey, Phil, good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you may be in the world. Hey, guys, I'm in Arizona, so it's pretty early, but coffee's kicking in. How are you doing? <laughs> we are great. Uh, Arizona, one of my favorite locations. So thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us, Phil, author of The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. And you know, I don't know if you were on and saw speaking to our first guest, guest, but man, there are really some tectonic forces. Like we're breaking down kind of, you know, geographic barriers and we're putting up other barriers and taking down others. Technology is moving at the speed of light. What is going on, Phil? Where are we? Where are we going? And what can the book tell us about all of this? The basic premise of the book, Mike, is that a series of forces, and we can talk about them, have effectively rendered the workplace inoperable um, or I'm um, sorry, um, indistinguishable from its pre-pandemic counterpart, whether it's inflation or generative AI tools like chat, GPT, automation, worker empowerment, fractions, immersive technologies. Apple a couple of days ago announced Vision Pro, which I predicted in the book, but people in the industry saw this coming for years. So 3,500 bucks. Yeah, I've, I've got four on me if you guys need extras. Yeah. Um, but um, so these changes, have, for all the folks who want to pretend that COVID never happened, I just think are deluding themselves. So the question becomes, what do you do about it? And that in the book is the book in a nutshell. That's tremendous, Phil. Uh, good morning. Clearly, you know, the producers of this show always, uh, always don't cease to amaze me. You know, three authors, um, a lot in common uh, with the subject and substance. Uh, you know, the nine, the second part of the title is the tectonic forces reshaping the workplace. Uh, and, and we've got a really, we're at an interesting time and inflection point, frankly, because we have uh, a big demographic of the workplace kind of on their way out. And then we have two other generations in, in the workplace. Um, how have you seen that dynamic uh, change and what's reshaping that dynamic? And is the, 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 the growth in technology sort of driving that, that third generation success in the workplace? And will we see, you know, more of them leapfrogging maybe the folks ahead of them because of that? Or 
Is that something that I'm just way off with? I wish I had a crystal ball. It's very difficult to see how these forces will play out. I can just tell you that they're in motion and they're intensifying with respect to your question, David. Um, I mean, you could argue that a tech-savvy generation is more prepared to handle some of these forces. So if you're comfortable with tech, um, you might be able to survive potential obsolescence or, or use the Silicon Valley parlance pivot a bit quicker than folks who pretend that this stuff doesn't matter. It's a great quote in the book from a Stanford professor I saw on CBS this morning, and it's a, about AI. Effectively, in the future, there'll be two types of lawyers, those that embrace these AI tools like ChatGPT and MidJourney and a bunch of others, or folks who are no longer lawyers. So you can sort of follow lead or get out of the way, and that's one of the prescriptions I have in the book. But yeah, it's, I mean, we see that there's a with respect to remote work or dispersion, which is another one of the forces, a bunch of younger folks just being very comfortable working remotely. I think it's a big mistake never to get in the office. Oodles of research suggest that there is a, a very real proximity bias, out of sight, out of mind. So, David, you could be working your tukus off at home, but I don't see you, whereas Mike is kind of a slacker, but he's in the office. Well, all things being equal, the slacker is going to get the promotion. So there are lots of variables that I discuss in the book, lots of research around structural issues in the economy, whether it's the declining birth rate or the lack of, say, um, immigration over the last five to six years that's really hamstrung certain markets. There's something like 500,000, a dearth of 500,000 construction workers in the U.S. So th there's, there's a lot going on in this book. And yeah, in my opinion, it's better to be aware of it than not. Yeah, absolutely. And Mike, Michael, what's uh, Michael? I'm sorry, I'm looking at my other notes, I'm looking at someone else. Phil, what's the the um, like? How do you onboard? Like, I'm thinking of my my mother or you know my older relatives. How do we onboard people like that for what's coming? Because I remember seeing Phil the um, you know just getting them up to speed with mobile phones or email and or Facebook and things like that. How do we get you know, the generation, because it's, there is a learning curve to some of this, right? Not everybody can, can log on to chat GPT or GPT-4 and figure out how to run with it. Phil, how do we get people up to speed with this to even, number one, comprehend it, but then to start utilizing some of these technologies? Yeah, I'd say, Mike, that awareness is the most important thing. Better, as I said before, better to know than not know. But this notion that we'll just learn everything we need to know for our career and we'll be finished is just absurd. It was McKinsey a couple of years ago that put out some research that the average half-life of a skill these days is 3.5 years. That's anathema to certainly when I went to college and you picked a major and in theory, you were going to be an economics um, student, if you like, or pr practitioner for your entire life. So uh, again, technology, to your point, has been accelerating. It's something I've addressed in some of my previous books. And I think it's on steroids right now, particularly as these forces collide. When you think about automation, for example, which is another one of the forces, and that's just going to render certain jobs, um, if not obsolete, then certainly more rare. Um, have you guys heard of the robot McDonald's in Fort Worth, Texas? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, so it, it's folly to believe that these trends will just stop because we want them to. Yeah. Moreno, before, before you jump in with your question, can I ask Phil one more? Because you yeah, touched on it. Phil, what's, you know, you talk about that with regard to education. I mean, is it, is education even able to keep up at this point? How much of what kids are learning in school today, when you talk about half-lives of careers and different things, 
is even applicable. Because I, I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day, and he was telling me what his daughter is learning with regard to, to marketing and how she wants to be a marketing major and wants to work at a marketing firm. And I said, well, what's she doing with technology? What's she learning about blockchain? What's she learning about all of these things? And he said, nothing. And I said, well, it's, it's inapplicable. I mean, it's not even, you can't even, it's not that it's inapplicable, but you can't really apply what's happening today in the real world. Can schools keep up? I guess that's my question. The ones that believe that they can keep a baby in a corner, so to speak, I don't think so. Um, to me, it's, and we've seen a lot of schools, I'm a former college professor, so I've been in plenty of meetings uh, academic committees, uh, Mike, don't keep pace at the same speed of technology. So you could pretend that a tool like ChatGPT doesn't exist. That doesn't mean that the students won't use it. And the more intelligent and progressive professors and institutions are basically saying, how do we use this? Because kind of like a calculator with a tip, now I don't need a calculator to calculate one, but if you didn't, you, know, you, you wouldn't carry around a calculator. You just take out your iPhone or you could even ask Siri or Alexa, which knowing me now, my, um, Devices will start picking that I said those words so for education. And that's not an explicit theme of the book, but it's certainly a, a tangential one. Um, I think it's important to teach principles, critical thinking, problem solving, um, adapting to change. That's not going to go away. Um, how do these tools enable that? How do you spot, you know, with respect to critical thinking, if something's actually true? Um, there's um, David Marcus is a an AI expert, I quote in the book, who's, I think he used to be a professor at Columbia or NYU, I forget off the top of my head. And he talks about authoritative bullshit. When you ask ChatGPT a, a question, and it spits out a couple of things that are correct. Oh, okay. But then it spits out a few things that aren't. Well, how do you know what's true? ChatGPT certainly doesn't. No AI does. They'll get better over time, but without getting into a big political debate so early in the morning, what is truth? So to me, if, if I were still in, in higher ed, I would be teaching those concepts, those principles versus those specific tools, because the tools are going to change in some cases before students even graduate. Well, you obviously been positioned in this space for, for a while, for a long time. Um, some of your previous book titles include Zoom for Dummies and Slack for Dummies and what those things have in common is obviously they have grown with the, the changing world that we're in, uh, particularly the pandemic. We've seen a lot of companies switch to uh, policies that have been, you know, more apparent in, 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 in tech industries and other industries for years. And some of the more traditional, like, you know, uh, get off my lawn folks, like in the legal industry that Mike and I have been in, are more open to, to remote work. Um, do you have any, any theories or understandings about uh, productivity in regards to working from home versus being in the office? And, you know, how can folks improve their productivity uh, when working from home? Or do you think we're at an inflection point where folks are going to start to have to go back to the office? Here's the way I see it playing out, David. And it's going to vary. You're going to find exceptions all day long. Google yesterday, I was reading a story on um, CNBC, announced that employees would have to come back three days to the office. I, I think that that's where we'll ultimately land in many, not all cases. Uh, for certain types of jobs, if I work physical security, right, I'm a goon, I'm a bouncer at a club, that's really hard to do remotely. Uh, but if I'm sitting there coding all day long, why do I need to be in an office to do that? Uh, one of my favorite examples in the new book, uh, David, is from Cisco. The company inverted its Manhattan office. What do I mean by that? They used to allocate 70% of the space there towards individual work, cubicles, workstations, whatever, 30% for collaboration, conference rooms, training rooms, whatever. They flipped it. 
and they spend a bunch of money because they wanted work to be a destination. So if you're doing individual work, we don't have a place for you. You probably want to stay home. But if you're meeting with your manager, if you're doing training, if you're having a performance discussion, if you want to interview folks, you might want to do that in person. So I, I do think that the future, and I've discussed this in the previous books, will be hybrid. Um, Nicholas Bloom, who's a professor out of Stanford, has done a lot of research and Effectively, if you track the data over time, certainly with lockdown, very few people were coming to the office, but we've kind of leveled out over the last year or so. Workers want to, generally speaking, come in two days a week. Companies, by and large, are asking for three. To me, that's a zone of agreement, right? As I've argued before, it's absurd for an employee to say, I'm never coming in. It's also absurd for an employer to say, well, you always have to come into work. To answer your question, the data is very... Um, um, powerful. We were, if not more productive at work, certainly as productive at work during the pandemic, and the tools have made that clear. So it's 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 a power issue when managers say, well, you have to be in the work to be productive. It's, it's just bullshit. Yeah. Is there, is there, Phil, some, do you think, impact on us on, you know, for example, with some of the things that I'm seeing here that we're doing with some of the technology, there is a collaborative aspect of it, right? When people sit around, when we sit around a campfire and we tell stories, the stories get better. We appreciate them more, perhaps, than if we're doing this two-dimensionally. Um, when we talk about whether it's two days at work or three days at work, there has to be, like you said, that that's just a negotiation. We're going to figure out what works. But what kind of an impact do you think that has on us in terms of what we're creating, like the collaboration of things going forward, if we're not sitting in rooms together? Because I think, you know, I'm a big energy guy. I think about human energy and everything in the universe is energy. And when we're in the room, we pick up on energies. We can see things, we can hear things, but there are other imperceptible things, I think, that happen when we're together. How much of that do you think is starting to change because of all of this? Well, so you're right from all the research that I've read. If you are, say, an introvert, the fact that you can think about your response rather than being pressured to say something in a meeting when the CEO is there, um, it's certainly beneficial. Again, there's other research indicating that people of color and minorities, women, um, tend to feel less um, apprehensive, maybe, about speaking up um, live as opposed to doing it online. Um, so there's that. I, I agree with you, though. There is a magic to being there in person, and I, I don't see that changing. So to me, it's just a, a number. When do you come in? Is it once a week, once a month, once a year? But never meeting your colleagues. I mean, I, I, if, I certainly wouldn't want to work with colleagues who face I only recognize from Zoom or Slack or Microsoft Teams. I think there's tremendous value in going to lunch and you know breaking bread or playing some silly icebreaker or talking about succession or breaking bad or game of thrones. Well, and one of my favorite Dave, before you jump in, one of my fa favorite effects of all of this is the uh, inability to distinguish height. Uh, like Moreno and I look the same size on zoom and we walk into a room and people go, you're five, six. I thought you were six, five. And Moreno walks in, they go, man, you're a big guy. So that's always great to see the in interplay between the digital and the real worlds. Go ahead. Moreno. Yeah, <laughs> We very often get mistaken for twins. Uh, <laughs> the movie version. Um, Phil, interesting stuff, man. We, we definitely have to have you back on, especially when when, when uh, Dave Meltzer's here. I think he would completely uh, love what you're what you're discussing, and he's leaned into digital age in ways that I know have surprised him. Um, so look forward to chatting more. Uh, can tell everybody where to find the book. And, and where to find you if they want to just download and, and talk about some of this stuff. 
yeah, you can grab a free samples of this bad boy on my website, whether it's the audio book or the, um, the digital book, but yeah, pretty much uh, online and you know, my website's pretty simple. So thanks for having me on guys. I could have talked about this stuff for hours. Thanks. Bill. Uh, appreciate it. Um, happy Friday, everybody. This has been an amazing conversation. Uh, Mike, I'm sure you have an awesome takeaway. that's going to make me sound dumb after I go after you, but I will never take it away. <laughs> never. Look, the reality is, you know, I think the theme here throughout was change, right? And, and so much of what we're experiencing throughout history, but especially now at an exponential rate is change. And they say that the only constant in life is change. And the more we can embrace that, the better off we are. And so whether it's through computer technology or human technology or a combination, a hybrid of the two of those, things are happening. And so you have to look at, I think, you, you know, what's your North Star in all of this? as things start to change faster and faster in so many ways that we can't even begin to imagine how do we stay on course? How do we stay on target? It's through, you know, having that North star. What is that North star? It's your morals. It's your values. It's your integrity. It's those things, Dave, that I love. You have to, would she say, would your mother tell you you have to lift while you, while you climb and all of those things that get you yeah. where you need to be. So no matter what happens with computer technology or human technology or everything and anything else, Make sure that you remember who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. Man, that's a great takeaway. Uh, you know, we, we are very much in the uh, get with it or get lost era, right? Which is if you don't adapt and aren't willing to be open to these changes, then you're going to just get left behind. Um, so my, my takeaway today is just like continue to be open-minded. Uh, there's a ton of things that I use daily now that when they first came out, I'm like, why would I need that, right? And, 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 you know, I had to be open-minded to the change and, and seeing how it could improve either my home life, my personal life, or my work life. So, again, you know, we are in the get with it to get lost era. Please be open to change. Uh, everybody tune in to all of the places where you can catch our buddy Dave Meltzer. Uh, Dave's got a meetup coming up in London, UK, uh, tomorrow at 8 a.m. Um, you can text him, 949-298-2905. Mike, I love you. Enjoy Miami. Uh, I will see you soon. Take care, Look everybody. Look forward to it, likewise. Bye, everybody.